Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership role yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do visit leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's show on what is another warm, sunny morning here in the capital is Bob Clark. Bob is the owner of Fenton Packaging, a wholesaler and distributor of packaging products buying globally and selling nationally. Bob has worked in the packaging industry since 1967 and been a can maker for more than 50 years. Um, plenty of experience in the industry, therefore. Bob, welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Scott. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to uh, talk about leadership and uh, something about the packaging industry. Yeah, exactly. And um, it's a sector that certainly I think um, in the aftermath of the COVID-19 situation that we find ourselves in is um, going to have sort of a lot to reflect on because there is that sort of renewed push towards sort of sustainability, isn't there, within the industry? And that's something I'm sure we'll touch on later. But just to start with, reflecting on the whole sort of pandemic period as a whole, which has affected us for so long now, it seems, um, how has it affected you and your business, would you say? Well, initially, it had a dramatic effect. Um, I was one of the 60, 70, 80,000 people who went to Cheltenham in March 2020 for the festival. Mm. And no sooner had that taken place, um, the whole country was in lockdown. And uh, our sales fell off a cliff in April and May. Uh, up to March, it was, it was relatively normal. And then April and May, I think we dropped between 30 and 35% compared to the prior year over those two months. And then it's, we started to see some recovery. Uh, I think there might have been some overreaction, but the industrial markets that we serve, for example, coatings, continue to operate as a, a protected industry, if you like, and um, packaging uh, likewise, because a lot of the packaging goes into the food and beverage sector. Mm. Um, we need to continue to uh, you know to feed people so uh, uh, packaging had had a measure of protection and um, after that initial shock in April and May it started to recover and I'm guessing by the end of our financial year which was September we were probably down about 10% on the prior year so there was a there was quite a strong recovery um, mm. but the situation has continued from October uh, up to now really um, and we've continued to operate below uh, prior year, um, but better than could have been anticipated. And just looking back to sort of the early stages of the crisis, when we didn't know a great deal about the virus and there was maybe a bit of sort of lingering anxiety and doubt about the risks associated with it, um, was it easy, did you find, for your workforce to sort of get their heads down and kind of keep working with sort of the social distancing measures in place, or was it maybe a little bit harder than that? With the wholesale and distribution business, you have people who have to work out of an office or have to work out of a, a, a warehouse. You've got drivers who need to deliver. So you've got people who uh, need to be site-based. Where it was possible for people to operate from home, for example, me, then 
uh, that's exactly what we did. So we made sure that people were set up uh, with, um, you know, computers that had Zoom and t- uh, Teams meetings available. And we started immediately. Uh, we had the uh, the first lockdown with uh, Zoom and Teams meetings on a daily basis. And we started to micromanage the business. Having said all that, we did have people who uh, were furloughed. We had people who uh, had come into contact with other people with COVID who had to get tested, who had to self-isolate. Um, so we were operating on, on a skeleton staff for quite a number of, of months. Um, virtually everybody is back from furlough and working and working normally. That's really positive. And with regards to sort of that headway made in sort of the flexible working side of things, is there going to be a place for that within the business moving forward? Or is it very much a back to the office kind of framework that you'll be looking at going forward now? I think generally it will be a back to back to office and back to site mm. um, warehouse op- operating because, you know, you can't load trucks and you can't drive trucks from, a, you know, from a desk at home. Correct. It just doesn't work. But we always have remote working people. For example, all of our sales managers, our sales development director, sales development manager have always worked from home and gone into the office uh, when, you know, when required. So uh, there is a mixture, um, but mainly those people who you would expect to be office space will come back to the office. And just thinking, yeah. And when you sort of had to kind of like lead them all when they were scattered around. So when there were one or two people furloughed, there was the skeleton crew operating on site and many more working from home. Um, What was it like sort of leading a team that was essentially sort of scattered around and all working from afar? What was that like? Well, I didn't find it too difficult. Uh, You know, we have calls on a a daily basis uh, that involve um, our sales, our um, sales office, our operations, our purchasing teams, and that's what we did. We just operated by micromanaging the business on a daily basis, and we were speaking to people two or three times a day, as well as the calls to ensure that uh, we maintained in the service to our customers. Um, things have got very difficult in the uh, in this calendar year, but maybe we can come back to that later, and I'll tell you what's been going on in respect of. Um, supply chain, service issues, costs, um, shortages of raw materials and products. Yeah, exactly. It's something we could certainly touch on a little bit later on. And um, one thing I did want to sort of address um, now as well is looking back over the whole sort of pandemic period, um, having had the experience of crisis management to date and guiding the business through, would you say that that's actually sort of built up a real resilience in yourself and within the company and maybe in some ways made you stronger for the experience you've had? I believe that's the case. Uh, we have changed the um, the role and responsibilities in the organisation structure. I've got less direct reports than I had previously. Uh, we've um, increased the um, you know, the responsibilities of certain members of the team, uh, but I've led the uh, the calls that we've had um, with our purchasing manager. Uh, but we've also had management meetings. We were having those daily at one time. Now it's twice a week. Uh, we've been stated the board meetings, uh, and we've had two of those, and we'll continue to that, do that bi-monthly, uh, normally off-site. Uh, 
we use the uh, the kind offices of the British Coaching Federation in Coventry, and um, we meet up at their site. It's a big meeting room there, the one that we use anyway. So uh, we can meet, we can talk, we can make a recording, we can have a transcript. Uh, I do write the minutes um, using the transcript for guidance, and um, you know it has made us stronger as a as a team. You know we we feel that we're more integrated than we were previously. Uh, somebody. One of our customers, in fact, uh, thought we were still operating, or still, we were operating in silos. And I said, well, that's, that's not the case. It never has been. Um, but with the uh, the daily contact that's gone on, nobody can accuse us of operating in silos now. We operate as an integrated team. Yeah, exactly right. And um, thinking about sort of the uh, the future a little bit now, um, we know that with sort of the government's Build Back Better agenda, that sort of sustainability and building back greener is going to be very much at the heart of that. And I suppose in the industry that you're in, the packaging sector, working with things like recycled materials, etc., all of that's going to be sort of a real priority moving uh, forward for you, isn't it? Yes, I would say that almost without exception, all of the materials that we supply to our customers, irrespective of market sector, uh, are recyclable. Uh, Whether the infrastructure is there uh, within the local councils to do that um, and do it consistently across the country uh, is is an issue. So uh, we we certainly try and source material Take plastic, you know, which is a uh, headline grabber at the, you know, and has been for a while now. Mm. You know, the materials that we use, like uh, polypropylene, high density polyethylene, they're all recyclable, provided the facilities exist within the councils to, to recycle them. Certainly, if you look in your recycling bin um, and you look at the, you know, the packaging that goes in there, whether it's steel or template or plastic the council should be able to extract that and, re- and put it into the recycling chain. Yeah, exactly. So that is something that will need to be addressed sort of on another level moving forward to make sure the businesses can be as efficient as possible because industry is certainly playing its part. Um, And this year as well, um, talking about sort of materials and that supply coming in, just as we sort of touched on before, the shutdowns from sort of last year with the lockdowns and the impact that that's having on the supply chain, that's almost catching up with industry at the moment, isn't it? Because the supply of raw materials, especially for a lot of industries, we've seen it in construction, for example, it's a little bit of a problem at the moment that businesses are having to try and get around. Yes. uh, And particularly in this calendar year, surprisingly, we seem to manage uh, reasonably well last year. Um, from April right through to the end of the year. There were supply chain issues, lead times got extended, um, but the situation has become much worse in uh, 2021 as raw material supply has been interrupted. Uh, costs have increased quite dramatically, uh, in some cases between 50 and 100%, uh, and normally that represents maybe 20%, 25%, on products, uh, and it's been necessary for the uh, for the uh, packaging manufacturers and the wholesale and distributors to pass these increases on through the supply chain to its customers. Otherwise, they would have been out of business. Uh, 
Uh, and we're seeing, still seeing the effects of some of that now as increases continue to, to go through in July and August. Uh, it's unlikely that that will uh, come down um, quickly, but it looks as though the situation might have peaked and therefore we could see some reductions uh, in the second half of the year, but I'm not holding my breath. Yeah, it's one of those sort of uncertainties, isn't it, where we just got to keep an eye on it and hope that things do sort of drop off and the supply can return. And I think it suffices that we also address sort of the longer term future just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the show today, uh, Bob, because I'm conscious that we're starting to run short of time. Um, we are entering a little bit of an uncertain period with the state of the supply chain and also with social restrictions. They're gone in England for now, of course, as of July the 21st, but we don't know whether they're going to be making a comeback later in the year. But in an ideal world, where do you see yourselves at Fenton Packaging going over the next year? What are some of your priorities going to be and what are you sort of hoping to achieve business-wise? Well, our major priority is to... Um, maintain and improve our customer service because we've had some uh, impact on that during this 15-16 um, months of COVID. And you know, we, we've always been successful because of the service that we provide to our customers. So it's essential that we, you know, we do that. We've, you know, we've added uh, hundreds of thousand pounds to, uh, you know, to our stock value, some of which is inflation, but uh, some of it is, uh, is volume that uh, we put into the, uh, into the warehouses. Uh, and, you know, we have to manage it product by product. Some of it's generic stock. Some of it is bespoke to, to a customer. For example, if you've got printed cans or you've got in mold labeled um, injection molded plastic buckets, uh, and, you know, we need to maintain service on those. So it's important that we get all of the information we can from our customers in relation to their own business and what they believe their requirements will be in the second half of the year. And then we put that into our uh, forecasting and our purchasing system uh, to ensure that we, you know, put the right orders with the, the right manufacturers. It's all about right place, right time when it comes to stock holding. And at the moment, we, um, you know, we're probably carrying slightly, slightly too much because of these extended lead times. The fact that you've got got to put additional orders on, mm. you're trying to bring it into stock. What also happens on the continent in particular is that um, the European Union countries, France, Germany, Spain, Portugal, Italy, uh, all closed down in August for, for two weeks holiday. Uh, and it's essential that we maintain service during that period. So it's always been our uh, policy to bring product in before the before the shutdown, because with the best will in the world, when they come back after two weeks, uh, it takes them at least another week to get um, to get up and running. Uh, so you know we always take that into account, and there'll be an element of um, stock increase due to. Uh, Manufacturers close uh, closures during August as we as we work our way through July, and then you blink, and you know July is almost gone. It's incredible, really. It is. Time is going so quickly and it's crazy to think that we've been in this pandemic for pretty much sixteen months now, and that's already sort of been and gone that time um it's seems to have almost gone in a flash doesn't it and hopefully we'll see the end of social restrictions go in a similar speed before too long and 
I do hope as well that uh, the business is able to sort of get back to its regular operations and have all the success in the world going forward, most importantly. And I think, Bob, as we start to sort of understand a little bit more as well about the way that the supply chain is going, the way that industry is going and the shape of the economic recovery as well, I'd actually love to catch up and have you back on the programme with us just to discuss how far we've come because I've really enjoyed having you on the show today and it's been an eye-opening discussion just to see what's been going on within the packaging industry. Yeah, well, it's an essential industry. Just have a look around your, uh, you know, your kitchen and uh, in any cupboards, and then look in your recycling bin. Mm. You'll see how important it is. Um, I was only doing that again this morning, and uh, I remember walking a venture capitalist around a supermarket, um, and you know, just pointing out the extent that packaging um, protects the product and presents the product to uh, to the consumer. Um, it's a massive industry, uh, absolutely vital to, uh, you know, to protecting food, uh, maintaining the shelf life of products. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been delighted to be part of that for a long time. Yes, absolutely. Many years in the industry, hopefully more to come as well. Uh, Bob, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. And also do take care and stay safe with everything that is still going on also. Thank you, Scott. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Bob Clark, owner of Fenton Packaging, onto today's programme. Joining us next on today's programme will be our chairman here at the Leaders' Council and the former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who will be sharing his take on the events of the COVID-19 situation and his hopes for what should hopefully be a period of economic recovery ahead of us. That will be coming up on the programme next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways 
of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. But actually, I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in, 
And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would. People criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr. Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well Uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also 
that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.